0: Welcome, River Rock Bible Church. How are you this morning? Very good. Hey, if you're just joining us for the first time or for the first time in a long time, we're actually finishing a series today on the family. And uh, what we've done is we have taken a section of Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Beatitudes. And we're taking this passage of Scripture that Jesus taught for everyone, but we're applying it directly to the family. And in this section, Jesus gives us eight qualities of people who are blessed. And so we're taking those qualities and we're applying it directly to the family and we're asking God to bless this home. And throughout this series, we've had kind of a common statement, you've heard it throughout the series, and it's a little bit of a paradigm shift for most of us. And that statement is this, that we are not just a Christian family, we are a Christ-centered home. We're not just a Christian family, we are a Christ-centered home. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, that doesn't sound too different to me. In fact, those sound exactly alike. But there is a big difference between being a Christ-centered family and a Christian home. Because you see, in America today, where we live, calling yourself a Christian doesn't mean what it used to mean. You see, it's kind of become the default religion. In fact, almost 80% of Americans claim to be Christian, and if you were to ask someone, well, what are you religiously? And they say, well, I'm not uh, Jewish, not Muslim, not Buddhist. I guess I'm a Christian. I'm not anything else, so I guess that makes me a Christian. And so, if you were to look on the family and say, is this a Christian family? If I were to ask you that, you might look at the family and say, you know, gosh, I I, I don't really know. I mean, looks like they're going to church on Sunday mornings, but. Other than that, their lives don't look really different than anybody else. Are they a Christian family? I I don't know. I can't say. And so when we talk about being a Christ-centered home, what we mean is that Jesus isn't just a part of our lives. He's not just something that we do occasionally, Easter and, and Christmas and maybe once a week on Sunday, but Jesus is at the center of our lives. That's what it means to be a Christ-centered family. And when Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, things change. Things change. Your values change. The way you use your resources changes. The way you respond to other people and the way you treat other people, all of these things change because Jesus isn't just a part of your life. He's at the center of your life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In fact, this morning's uh, statement... The big idea for this morning, are you ready for it? It's this, the Christ-centered, if you are a Christ-centered family, Christ-centered home, you will be persecuted. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? Everybody was excited, thought you were going to come to church, be encouraged, and hear your pastors telling you that if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to be a Christ-centered family, you will be persecuted. Persecuted. You will be persecuted. Now, we have to understand that persecution in our country today is relatively light. Uh, And and what this means is, as we looked at the first week, we looked at those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what you've got to realize is that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness in an unrighteous world, people are going to make fun of you. They won't understand. The next week, Bill preached for me, and uh, he preached on blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. If you're striving to be pure and keep purity within your family, in a world that idolizes impurity, people are going to make fun of you. They're going to persecute you. Last week, we saw blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers, not troublemakers, but peacemakers. And if you turn the other cheek when someone strikes you, or, or you go the extra mile to serve someone, or perhaps you're, you're willing to forgive someone who's done something awful to you. Most people in our culture today don't have a category for that. And so they just assume that you're a weirdo or that you're a doormat. And they're going to treat you differently because they don't understand. You will be persecuted. And this is what Jesus tells us today. This is the eighth and final beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. He says, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of your right living. Because you're pursuing what God says is right, you will be blessed. He goes on and he says this, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Now, what he doesn't say is, blessed are you when they persecute you because you're mean to them or because you're rude to them and you're trying to beat them over the head with your Bible. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when you're pursuing me, when you're pursuing righteousness and you're living a godly life, the world around you will not understand it and they will persecute you. And it may be in small ways, but it's going to happen. Jesus is telling them it's going to happen. Now, what we have to understand, I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, you know what, Pastor, uh, I can understand if you're persecuted as a preacher, because let's be honest, you and your family are a little bit weird, and you probably have it coming, right? But you don't have to be a preacher, you don't have to be a pastor to be persecuted. In fact, the very first case that we read about in Scripture of persecution, persecution is between Cain and Abel. Abel wasn't preaching to Cain. Abel was simply living a godly life. He was striving to do the things that God says are right. He was striving to honor God. And Cain is over here watching this, and his own sin is convicting him. And it's making him angry because he can't seem to get it right. And it makes him so angry that he murders his own brother. You don't have to be a preacher to be persecuted. If you are seeking to live a godly life, you will be persecuted, and it may come in small ways. You may be a teenager who says, You know what? I want to honor God, so I'm going to commit myself to sexual purity. I'm going to remain sexually pure until God brings me together and I am married to the man or to the woman that God has called me to be married to. And your friends aren't going to understand that, and they're going to say, Come on, man, it's just sex come on, this is the time of your life. You're in college now. You need to be having fun. You need to sow your wild oats. And you say, no, I'm going to honor God with my purity. It may be, uh, guys, that, that there's a business deal that comes up, and you stand to make a lot of money. I mean a lot of money. But there's just that little bit of reporting on there, or maybe just a little bit unethical, and you don't feel right about it. And you look at it and you say, you know what? I'm not going to do this deal. And your coworkers are like, man, you're an idiot. You're passing up all this money. Everybody lies about this. Everybody cheats a little bit in this area. Everybody does this. It's just common practice. You're fine. Do it. And you say, no. I made a promise to God that I was going to honor him in every area of my life. So even though it's going to cost me, I'm going to pass over this deal. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to continue to honor God. So we have to recognize that we are going to be persecuted. And and again, sometimes that may be from friends and family members who simply don't understand. It may be that you choose to keep your kids out of a certain sports league because they play games at the time when you and your family go to church. And you're going to have people say, What is wrong with you? How can you put your four-year-old's future behind the church. How can you put church ahead of the future of your four-year-old? Don't you know he's never going to make it to the majors if he doesn't play? Maybe church is a better investment for your four-year-old than sports. So people are not going to understand. They're going to persecute you. So how do we do, how do we prepare our families for that? Jesus says, look, it's going to happen. It's going to come. How do we prepare our families for that? The first thing that we want to do as we talk about being a Christ-centered family that we know is going to face persecution, the very first thing we want to do is we want to expect it. We expect it. Jesus tells us it's going to happen. We expect that it's going to happen. In fact, uh, we read this in Second Timothy 3.12. All those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. What does that say? Read that together with me. What does that say? All those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted will be persecuted. Paul is telling Timothy, he says, look, if you're going to honor God with your life, you will be persecuted. And this may come in big ways, or it may come in small ways. For some of us, it may be simply uh, the fact that we're different. That when we sit down at Thanksgiving dinner, and we tell our family, hey, let's pray. That we've got some heathen in our family that are like, man, the cowboys are on in just a minute, and uh, I want to watch them get beat. And so let's, let's sit down and just hurry up this thing and forget the, forget the prayer. What do you want to pray for anyways? It may be something small like that, but what you have to understand is that when you are a Christ-centered family, you will be different. You will be different. And not in the way that the rest of the world thinks they're all different, but they're all the same, right? Like a bunch of hipsters, they all think they're different, but they're really just all the same. Uh, and we're going to be different in our own unique way. We're going to be different because we're seeking God's plan for our life. We're going to be different because we're seeking God's perfect will for our family because Jesus Christ is not just a part of our life. He's at the center of our life. There may be people that make fun of you on Facebook. Maybe you post a scripture and someone says, how could you post that? How could you dare say that to me at this time? And they're going to harass you because you've posted something on Facebook. They're going to give you a difficult time teenagers, students, maybe you take your Bible with you to school and you carry a Bible at school. Maybe at lunchtime you sit down and you read it and they say, what is wrong with you reading that that Bible at lunch? Don't you have anything better to do? And they're going to persecute you in small ways, in small ways. And uh, here's one of the things that I've discovered. I've done this with my family and that I think is very, very helpful. Uh, We know it's going to happen. We're expecting the persecution. And so in order to be prepared for that, I think it's important that we, as parents, we introduce our kids to persecution in small and controlled doses, right? We don't let them drink from the fire hose, but we let them experience a little bit of that persecution. And here's one of the ways we've done that in our family. Uh, And really, a lot of, of my wife's and my extended family, they don't understand why we do this. And they don't get it. But what we decided before we even had kids is that we were only going to spend a certain amount. And I'll tell you, it's not very much. It's less than a hundred dollars. Um, it's most times it's less than fifty dollars. That's all we're going to spend on Christmas. That's it per kid. And so they get to they can come up with a list of whatever they want. But you're only getting three things. And I had a friend this week who said three things. Why three things? And I said, well, that's what Jesus got, and they're not any better than he is. So they get three things for christmas and you can you can ask for whatever you want but here's the budget here's what mommy and daddy have to spend and you're getting three things and our families look at that and they're like man we used to spend hundreds and thousands on you kids every christmas and you need to spoil your kids they're little you need to give them all this stuff they need all these toys how can you do this and it's like no this is what we've decided we love Christmas. We love seeing our kids open their toys. This past year, uh, I, my father-in-law helped me make a sword and shield for the boys, um, which counted as one. I felt guilty counting that as two, so I counted it as one present, the sword and the shield was one. And uh, they loved it, man. It, it didn't cost much. It was like $5 worth of wood and spray paint, and they had the best toy that they've ever had. Don't worry, those are wooden swords. I got them foam swords so they wouldn't put their eye out and beat each other with it. Um, so I am somewhat of a good parent. Uh, and and so we do this, and we tell our families, we say, look, get them one thing. We tell the grandparents, get them only one thing, and don't, don't get them the big, expensive thing. Get them something small. We're trying to teach them that Christmas is not about consuming. And it's an ongoing battle. It's not just Christmas time. There are times when our kids are out with the grandparents, and they say, oh, I, I want that. And grandparents are like, all right, you can have it. And we take it back. We tell them, no, you've got to take it back. We're teaching our kids that if you want something, you save for it. Or you ask for it for your birthday or Christmas. You have to wait. You don't just buy it because it's there. And our family doesn't understand that. They're like, they're just kids. Come on, let us spoil them a little bit. I'm like, you know, you can make them ice cream or something, you know, and, and give them ice cream before bed, and that can be spoiling them. But we're not going to lead our kids down that path where they think, They should get whatever they want whenever they want to get it. And our family doesn't understand, and so they make fun of us. They give us a hard time. They tease us, but they're exposed to it. Our kids are exposed to it. Their cousins are like, what is the deal with that? You only get three presents? Doesn't Santa Claus come to your house and, like, load you up with candy and all this stuff? It's like, we get three things. That's it. That's the rule. All right? And and so they're facing a little bit of that. And what we've got to realize is that in this country, the persecution uh, that we face is nothing compared to the rest of the world. Compared to other parts of the world, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you confess faith in Jesus Christ, they will cut your tongue out. And we know from recent news that there are still places in the world that being a Christian will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. So we face very, very little persecution here in this country, but I will say this. It's growing rapidly. It's growing rap- rapidly. Our culture is rapidly growing against the things of Christ, and they're rapidly turning against them and persecuting the things of Jesus Christ. And so we have to expect it. We have to expect that it's going to come. In fact, in, first John, in uh, John 15, Jesus says this. He tells his disciples, he says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says, look, you've got to expect it. If they persecuted me, the Son of God, they're going to persecute you. But we, just, we don't just expect it as a Christ-centered home we endure it we endure it in 1 Corinthians 4:12 we read this we labor working with our hands when we are reviled we blessed when we are persecuted what does it say church we endure it we endure it we don't whine about it we don't complain about it we don't gripe about it we don't Ooh! Friended me on Facebook because I'm a Christian. I'm so persecuted. No, suck it up. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. You take it like a man of God. You take it like a woman of God, and you endure it. You endure that little bit of persecution. Uh, We've already said there are places in the world where being a Christian could cost you your life. What we face is minuscule compared to that there are going to be people who, when you decide on spring break that you're going to go on a mission trip or you're going to use a week of your vacation to go on a mission trip to Haiti, there are going to be people around you who say, that's stupid. You need to go and have fun with your family. You, you ought to be blowing all that money on a cruise, not on, a, on going to Haiti. Why would you go to Haiti? It's one of the five poorest countries in the world. That's not a vacation. Why wouldn't you go to Panama City Beach for spring break? You could be out partying. You could be out having a good time. What's wrong with you? And you say, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going on a mission trip. You endure it. When you have people who tell you, Hey, look, uh, I still don't understand why you why you value these things, why you do these things. When they make fun of you because you decide you want to get out of debt and you don't want to be in bondage to some Visa or Mastercard, and you say, You know what? I'm going to honor God with my finances. I'm going to get rid of this ten thousand dollars of debt. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to buy the cheapest piece of junk that can get me from point A to point B, and I'm going to drive it until I'm out of debt. I'm going to sell my house. We're going to move to a smaller house. And they're saying, hey, come on over. Come, come to the lake with us. You can drive one of our four boats. We can take it in one of our 16 trucks, and we'll put one of our 30 flat screen TVs in there. Come on over here. Come on. Yeah, we're flat broke, but that's okay. Our kids will worry about it when we're gone. That's what we have life insurance for. They'll pay it off. Right? And you say, no, I'm going to honor God with my finances. I'm going to live in a biblical way. And that biblical way is this, that you would leave an inheritance to your children and your children's children. And so I'm going to do everything I can to stay out of debt, to get out of debt. And I'm going to stay out of debt. And that means making some sacrifices. And that means that we're going to live in a small house and we're going to drive crummy cars. And they're going to make fun of you and they're not going to understand it. But when that comes, you simply endure it. You endure it. Because when you endure that persecution, something happens. Something happens when you're persecuted that changes. It changes your relationship with God. Your spiritual roots grow deeper. Your intimacy with God grows deeper. When I was in high school, in fact, from the time I was a little boy, um, there was only one college that I ever wanted to go to. There was only one university that was good enough for me and my family And we knew from the time I was little bitty that this is where I was going to go. We've got the fight song that's going to be playing. Man, it's this song inspires me. I would listen to it every morning. There we go. I knew we'd had a couple of them in here. I know some of you Longhorns are dying right now. Come on, Matt, let's sing it. (laughs) There you go. Anyway, so I grew up, I was a huge Texas A&M fan. My dad had gone there until he and the school decided he shouldn't go there anymore. Uh, Had a little too much fun. My brother went there. He was in the scene, cadets. I had a a couple cousins that were Ross volunteers. They were in the Corps. They were Ross volunteers. Uh, I had a good friend that I was in Boy Scouts with. He was about five years older than I was. He was the head drum major while I was in high school. He was the head drum major at Texas A&M. He was a big-time Ross volunteer guy. He was in the Corps, and man, I was going to a and I was a band nerd in high school, but I was going to be in the Corps of Cadets, and I was going to be in the Wolf Pack. I was going to be in that band, and I was going to be drum major someday. I was going to try out for the 12th man squad, even though I knew it meant I was going to get decimated, and I wasn't going to make it, but I was going to try out. I was going to put on that number 12 and try out, and so I had all these plans, And then something happened when I was 15. God called me into ministry, and I wrestled with that for two years because I didn't want to go into ministry because everybody that I knew at 15 that went into ministry was like, oh, I'm going to Africa, I'm going to China. I was like, I don't want to go to Africa, I don't want to go to China, I want to stay right here. I'm from Texas, this is where I belong. And so I wrestled with that for two years, and finally God got a hold of me at age 17, and he said, no, you're you're going into ministry. And I said, okay, I'm going into ministry. This is what I'm doing that God is going to use me in spite of my faults, not because of who I am or how great I am, but because of how great he is. So I surrendered to ministry, and my plan at the time was still, I'm going to go to a and M, i A&M, I'm going to get a major in accounting, and then I'll go on to seminary. Well, it comes around to March or April of my senior year in high school, and I realized as I was praying that God was calling me to get a, a theological background, even in my undergrad that he wanted me to go somewhere where I was going to be able to study Scripture, I was going to be able to study theology, and I would get a head start on my Greek and Hebrew. And so I walked into my parents' room, and I said, Mom and Dad, I'm not going to Texas A&M. I was top t- 10% of my class. I was already accepted. I had scholarships. Everything was lined up. This is like a month before I graduate, parents, a month and a half before I graduate. So imagine your kid telling you, hey, no, we've got all these plans, but I'm not going to go there. And they said, great, where are you going to go? I said, I don't know. And I ended up at the University of Mary Hardin, Baylor. I remember being, uh, I was 12th grade. My 11th grade English teacher heard about this, and she came and found me, and she goes, I can't believe you're going to waste your talent and your intellect at a Christian school. And you know what that did? That strengthened my resolve. I knew that God was calling me to the right place, that I had made the right decision because I wasn't living to please man. I was living to please God. And what that teacher said, as much as I respected her, didn't mean Jack. Didn't mean Jack because I knew that I was following what God had called me to. So we're going to face that persecution. And honestly, I would say the lack of persecution in our lives, in this country, puts us at somewhat of a disadvantage because where there's persecution, the church is more united. The church is more bold. The people are more passionate about seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's something that we only see in places where persecution is strong. So we're at a little bit of a disadvantage, uh, but we can still stand firm together as a Christ-centered family. We can still face a little bit of that persecution and get a little bit more of those deeper roots that come when we face that persecution. We do a parent-child class before the parent-child dedication. Uh, We do that every Mother's Day, so if you have a kid you got to wait till Mother's Day to do parent-child dedication. But I take the parents through a class. And part of that class, one of of my favorite parts, is this statement. It's something that I learned as a youth pastor, and I've carried it with me ever since then. And we tell them this. Where family identity is strong, peer pressure is weak. Where family identity is weak, peer pressure is strong. When your kids don't understand what your family is about, and they don't have a real solid understanding of their identity, not just as a family, but who they are in Jesus Christ, peer pressure is so much stronger. Peer pressure is so much stronger. I mean, kids come to their parents, hey, Mom and Dad, what are we about? We're about going to the game. Yeah. Hey, Mom and Dad, what are we about? We're about new cars and nice vacations. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Hey, Mom and Dad, what are we about? We're about sports. Yeah. Hey, Mom and Dad, what are we about? Granite countertops, oh yeah. Hey, Mom and Dad, what are we about? We're about Jesus Christ. We're about his mission. We're about seeing his name glorified. Okay, I understand. When they understand their identity in Jesus Christ and your identity as a family, they understand not only who they are, but whose they are. So when we talk about persecution, not only do we expect it, and endure it, but we must embrace it. We must embrace the persecution. And this is what Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, just a little bit of background. The people that he's writing to are Christians in Rome, and at this time, they are being nailed to crosses, dipped in tar, and lit on fire. Not only that, but the ones that, that aren't crucified and burned are being put in the Colosseum with about four or five lions who haven't eaten in in ten days. And they're being mauled to death. And this is what he tells them. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name, that you would glorify God, that you bear that name. Peter says this, he says, look, when you face persecution, you thank God that you bear that name. When, when someone makes fun of you for your beliefs or for praying over your lunch, you praise God that you bear that name when all the other guys are headed out to the bootylicious bunny barn after work and you say, you know what, I'm gonna honor my wife. I'm gonna honor my wife and I'm gonna go home to her. Or someday I wanna be married and I wanna honor my future wife. So I'm not gonna, oh, come on, man, what's it gonna hurt? You're just looking. You can look at the menu as long as you eat at home. No, no, no. I wanna honor my wife. I want to honor those women. I treat women as children of God and not objects. When you do that, they're going to be persecuted. You you endure it. You embrace it like a man of God, like a woman of God. You face it head on, and you say, I don't care what you have to say. What matters to me is that I'm living the life that Jesus Christ has called me to live, and I praise God that I get to bear that name, that in some small way, I would get to suffer the same way that Jesus Christ who died for my sins and suffered for me, that I could bear his name. I could bear his name. We don't just expect it. We don't just endure it. We embrace it. We embrace it. We have to be prepared for the persecution that's going to come as we live as a Christ-centered family because we are not just a Christian family. We are a Christ-centered home. We are a Christ-centered home Uh, Let me tell you this. We don't worry when we are being persecuted. We worry when we're not being persecuted. Because if you're not being persecuted, and I want to say this as lovingly as I possibly can, if you're not being persecuted as a Christ-centered family, if you're not being persecuted, then perhaps you're just a Christian family in name only. And you're not truly a Christ-centered home. Because if you're following God, if you're following God's will, if you're striving to be righteous, if you're striving to be pure, if you're striving to be a peacemaker, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. Anytime you seek to follow God, there's going to be spiritual resistance, whether it's human or or of the devil himself there will be resistance to you following God. And so we don't worry when we are persecuted. We worry when we're not. Because if we're not being persecuted, perhaps we're walking the same way as the devil. So we expect it. We endure it. And we embrace it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The gentle are blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. God, bless this home. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would bless our homes. Lord, that we would honor you, that we would be pursuing your righteousness and your kingdom above all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What we like to do at this time in our service is something called Take Two. And this is just a moment where we take two minutes. There's going to be a little timer up on the screen, some music playing. But we want you to have a little bit of time to respond to what God is saying to you. What has God said to you this morning? Maybe you were reading in your Bible before you got here, and there's been a thought rolling around in your head that God has been speaking to you. Maybe there was a song that we sang or a part of a prayer or a part of the message where God really spoke to you. Uh, And what I'd ask is that there's a spot for you there to write down what God is saying to you, and then right below that, it says, I will. Because of what God is saying to me, I will. So we just want to give you two minutes to be with God, to think about what has he said to me, and what am I going to do about it? Let's take two.